in the time of the founders, if the government was able to go and open up everyone's mail to see if there was a particular communication from person X to person Y that they were looking for and go through a private delivery service to do that. That is really what the founders were trying to avoid happening through the, the Fourth Amendment. And if you fast forward now, a little over 200 years, it may be electronic, but that doesn't mean that these are not communications that are protected by the Constitution. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. My co-host, Bob Ambrosi, does as well. That's right. This is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I write a blog not called May It Please the Court, but I write a blog called Law Sites and also a blog called Media Law. And Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we want to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at www.goclio.com. Well, Bob, today we're going to cover the shutdown of the secure email provider LavaBit. Owner Ladar Levinson chose to suspend operations after the federal government asked him to turn over his SSL key, which is a secure sockets layer private key. This would grant the government access to all user emails, and the FBI claims they're only interested in the data belonging to just one user, whom the media suggests to be Edward Snowden. It's confirmed that Snowden was a LavaBit user, but he's not named in any of the court documents. The issue is the SSL key, and since it will decrypt everything, compromising the privacy of more than 400,000 users. In order to maintain the promised privacy, Levinson chose to shut down LavaBit. He wrote a letter to the users, which is now public on www.lavabit.com, explaining that he chose to end his business because he refused to be complicit in crimes against the American people. He also strongly suggested that no one trust their information with any services directly tied to the United States government. This case is causing changes within the industry of secure email providers, affecting users worldwide. A couple of different companies with similar operations have already chosen to suspend operations based on what's happened in the LavaBit situation. A judge refused an attempt to quash subpoenas. That case is now on appeal to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the American Civil Liberties Union, and a relatively new internet startup called Empeopled have all filed amicus briefs on behalf of LavaBit. Attorneys for the ACLU argue in their brief that, quote, Congress has explicitly refrained from requiring electronic communication service providers like LavaBit to design their services in a way that enables the government to easily access their users' data. And they go on to argue that forcing the site to surrender its SSL keys was unreasonable and undermined the company's lawful business model. We're going to talk about that program today and the international repercussions for the industry and for the future of secure email as we know it. Well, Bob, we had planned to have a senior online editor of Forbes, Casimir Hill, on the program, but she is unable to make it this morning. And so we're going to introduce our guest, attorney Jesse Benal. He's representing Ladar Levinson in LavaBit. His practice includes civil litigation, small business and nonprofit law, commercial lease disputes, appellate litigation, and election law. 
He has litigated cases in some of the busiest and most respected courts in the nation, including the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia and the Fairfax County Circuit Court. He also maintains an active appellate practice. Thank you for joining us, Jesse. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Jesse, I would like to start. I'm not sure how familiar all of our listeners are with exactly what's at stake, what's going on uh, in the LavaBit case. So maybe you can give us the background. What were the circumstances that, that brought about this litigation? Well, it's really a, a very interesting set of facts that led up to it. And I think you gave a very good summary early on. But what happened is federal agents showed up at my client's home and they wanted to, to get from him access to email account of a target of one of their investigations. He was willing to comply with that to the extent required by law. And he's always complied with requests, lawful requests, through subpoenas, through search warrants over the years that were narrowly tailored to give information about investigations into crimes. What was different this time is that they were asking not only for specific data, but they were asking for his encryption keys. And the encryption key that they're asking for was what's called SSL keys, or secure socket layers. The interesting thing about SSL keys is that these are the ways that we protect privacy really on the Internet, the most important way that we protect privacy. It's what secures a communication between a web browser and a server so that when you send information, whether it be an email, whether it be credit card information, or any number of data material, that that stays private and also that the user knows directly who they're communicating with and that there's not a intruder standing in the middle of the communication that's pretending to be somebody else that can steal that confidential information. SSL keys have kind of been called the crown jewel of data that Internet service providers have. And and all the major Internet service providers have SSL keys, whether it's Google or Facebook or Yahoo, Microsoft, anyone that facilitates any kind of communications or really any kind of credit card transactions, they all have these private SSL keys, and they all have to take the privacy of those keys very, very seriously. That is where Lidar really drew the line, is saying, I'll give you the lawful data that you think you're entitled to, but I'm not going to just hand over the keys that will let you surveil all of my customers including himself. Jesse, what's the legal basis that Ladar is asserting to say that he's not obligated to give the SSL keys? Well, there's a few. I think most importantly, this is done both through subpoenas and a search warrant. I think the most important basis is that this is a essentially a general warrant. It's not nearly tailored. It gives them access to not just the data of one user, but of all his users. So as a result, we are arguing that it violates the Fourth Amendment all the way back to the original intent of the Fourth Amendment. And by shutting down LavaBit, has he now prevented the government from getting access to anybody's emails? You know, we don't know what data that they already had. There was a trap trace order that went in place in July that's been unsealed now as well. So we don't know exactly what data that they had. So we don't exactly know whether they were able to make any use of the SSL keys that he did end up handing over to them after the court ruled that he had to do so. What was the court's basis for overruling his objections? Well, the the court believed that the government has a, a right through its subpoena power and through a search warrant to that information. And that's, of course, what we very strongly disagree with. On top of the constitutional arguments, we think that there's not even a statutory basis uh, to get the uh, the SSL keys. 
so that the government is, is just very clearly overstepping. Is this just a case where there's really no law that's caught up with technology to address this issue? That's correct. There's, there's no law that's directly on point here, and certainly not in the Fourth Circuit. And of course, the, the Supreme Court hasn't spoken directly on this either. So at this point, the court's just making it up? Well, the court's now trying to figure out how they're going to balance the need of law enforcement to investigate crimes with the right of privacy that all Americans have and have always had through the the Fourth Amendment. This is a a guy who built a business around the idea of secure email. He wasn't just trying to provide an email service, but he was trying to provide a service that provided a higher level of security than you might get using uh, Gmail or something like that. And it seems that what the government was doing was attempting to essentially say, even though we suspect one of your customers, perhaps, of wrongdoing, we want to put in place a mechanism that would allow us basically unfettered access to all of your customers' data. I mean, is that a fair characterization of it? I think that is a fair characterization. Matter of fact, it's really more than even just access. The way that these keys essentially work is they can't just go in and say, here is person X, and we want to unlock their communications using this SSL key. What they have to do is they have to unlock all the communication between all users and the the server at issue and siphon through all that information to figure out who they specifically want to look at. So essentially, they have to surveil every single customer a lot of it in order to reach their particular target. Do you think this would be any different, Jesse, if, say, for example, Edward Snowden had set up his own secure email system and it was only him on an email exchange server and then he set up an SSL key and said, I'm going to communicate with these people securely. Is there a difference in the court's treatment of your case because there are more people involved than just one? Oh, I think there absolutely is. If any third party targets any investigation had set up their own email server, which yeah, it's possible to do, and then had an SSL key that only protected themselves, had encryption uh, algorithms that only protected themselves. Well, that is something that I think would be a very different case from what we have here, where we have the data not of one person, but of over 410,000 people that are being secured by these particular SSL keys. So essentially then, your conclusion is there's no individual right to privacy. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Well, there is an individual right to privacy, but the government can take reasonable steps to override that, and there's a mechanism for that. You know, if there's a search warrant that's nearly tailored to one individual, then that search warrant is at that point going to override that person's privacy, but that's the balance that the Constitution gives us, is that in certain cases we have to sacrifice some privacy in order for law enforcement to be able to do its jobs, but we in this country have a very strong set of checks and balances against them having unfettered access to everyone's personal information and personal communications. It is, for all intents and purposes, as if in the time of the founders, if the government was able to go and open up everyone's mail to see if there was a particular communication from person X to person Y that they were looking for and go through a private uh, delivery service to do that. And that is really what the founders were trying to avoid happening through the, the Fourth Amendment. And if you fast forward now, a little over 200 years, 
it may be electronic, but that doesn't mean that these are not communications that are protected by the Constitution. Jesse, we need to take a quick break, and before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi and my co-host Jay Craig Williams and I are talking with attorney Jesse Benal, who represents Ladar Levison, the owner of LavaBit, about the shutdown of his company and the appeal now pending in the Fourth Circuit. And One of the issues in this case is the pen register statute, which initially I think the government based its request on that statute. And and then I think, if I understand it, perhaps modified the request to go after the SSL key, but it wanted to install a pen register. What is a pen register and how does the federal statutory law relate to what's happening in this case? Now, the pen register statute is something that's been around for really quite a while. And it's something that really has been used for federal wiretaps, and now it's being used for electronic surveillance as well. The government is able to install going through a method outlined by statute in the federal code, a pen register in order to basically record electronic communications. In this case, the statute says nothing about forcing a internet service provider to turn over SSL keys as part of installing what's called a, a pin trap device that you know helps uh, effectuate the listening in on the particular communications. It's our position that since the statute doesn't authorize that, and it authorizes a number of other things, that it is prohibited by statute. Now, on top of that, the court should read the statute in light of the serious constitutional concerns that are at stake in this case the court can actually avoid the constitutional question by just finding that there is no statutory basis for the government to go and get encryption keys from Internet service providers. If Congress wants to try to authorize that, then they can do so, and they can go pass legislation to authorize that. I think the chances of that passing this Congress or really any Congress with the the political climate about surveillance right now is very, very small. I don't think Congress would authorize it. And so the federal government, by taking the steps they have done in this case to attempt to get Mr. Levison and, and Lavabet's SSL keys, is not only in violation of the Fourth Amendment, it's in violation of, uh, of statute. And my understanding is that part of the problem here for the government was that 
I don't know whether they actually did install the pen register, but even if they did, that they were not going to be able to get access to what they wanted access to unless they could also get those SSL keys. And so they then had to come back and ask for the SSL keys. Is that right? Correct. It, in the record now, I can finally, as of October 2nd, talk about a lot of this stuff, whereas I couldn't before. But it's in the record that really what they were looking for is metadata, and that metadata was essentially not available to them, but through uh, getting the SSL keys. Now, my client, who is far from being an absolutist, he is, is a very reasonable person and understands that law enforcement has to be able to do their job in investigating crimes. They just have to do so through the, the bounds outlined in the Constitution, offered a compromise and said that he would rearrange his code and redo portions of his code in order to log the particular metadata that they were looking for without him having to turn over the keys to the castle. The federal government said that that wasn't good enough. They wanted real-time access, and the only thing that they were willing to, to settle for was the SSL keys. Even in light of a very reasonable compromise offered by my client, they wanted the whole kit and caboodle. So what's the takeaway from this, Jesse? Is it that now that because we can no longer expect any type of privacy through an SSL key that we have to get to cryptographic communications where one side has a code and the other side sends the code ahead of time and it can't be broken? Is there any level of privacy left at this point? Right now, I think the unfortunate situation is if you have a server or you have information that's being stored on a server in the United States, or you have someone that holds SSL keys that is subject to the United States government, there is no security. And if the government has access to everyone's SSL keys, and we only know that they're asking for SSL keys in this case, because of the litigation and the publicity that's resulted. We don't know how many other cases that they're asking for SSL keys. We're left to assume that essentially they have access to everyone's keys. Now, it's really interesting for me as a lawyer because I rely a lot on email, and I've always thought my email was relatively secure. But I end up in litigation involving and against the government from time to time. Is it even ethical for me at this point to use email knowing that the government has the ability to essentially read that email through the steps that they're taking. It's raising some, I think, very interesting questions. And I think the unfortunate thing is I'm starting to look for providers that are offshore. You know, there's countries like Iceland and Sweden that have much stronger privacy laws right now. And I think that's a sad day where we have to say that civil rights in other countries are being more heavily protected than in the United States of America. Well, I, I read today, Kashmir Hill had an article today talking about the fact that LavaBit is now working along with Silent Circle, which is a company founded by Phil Zimmerman, who was way back when the guy who developed PGP encryption software, the pretty good privacy uh, encryption software. And they're working to try and develop an open source peer-to-peer encryption software. But I mean, there is encryption software out there now. I mean, PGP is still available. I mean, if you're using an end-to-end encryption software, even if the government gets the SSL key, that's not going to give them access to the content of your messages. Not necessarily. But here's the interesting thing about SSLs. Not only is it protecting uh, the communication when it's in transit, not only is it protecting credit card information, not only is it protecting a lot of the metadata, like who you're sending email to and from, and the IP address it's being sent to, the time it's being sent, all that kind of information. It also stores your passwords. 
So they can compromise your passwords through uh, SSL, and that is going to necessarily then leave your other communications that even may be encrypted in, in other means more vulnerable. So that's why that SSL keys are so important because of all the different things that they secure. Well, the world has certainly changed, and we've just about reached the end of our program, so we've come to the point in show where we'd like to get your final thoughts, Jesse, along with your contact information, if you're willing to give it out so that our listeners can reach out to you and ask you follow-up questions if they like. So uh, we'll toss it over to you. Well, thank you, gentlemen, so much for having me. We think this is, of course, a, a very important case. And if you wanted to help LavaBit with its legal expenses and all this, we ask that you go to LavaBit.com. There's a link on that page to have people donate to help with the uh, legal expenses in this fight. I can be reached. Our website is bblawonline.com. My email address is jbanal at bblawonline.com. We're on Facebook at bblawyers. We certainly welcome any thoughts that people have, and it's really been great being able to talk with you guys about this case. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Really appreciate your being on the show. So, Bob, now it's the point where you and I have 30 seconds to share our closing thoughts and uh, before we get cut off by the buzzers. So, Bob, you're it. Well, uh, I got to say that uh, Jesse actually just touched on exactly what I've been thinking about this whole show, which is the uh, seriousness of this issue for lawyers who have an ethical duty to protect the confidentiality and security of client data and client communications. I guess I have felt somewhat secure in using uh, encryption when I feel that that's a critical need in a communication, but even this is making me wonder about that. There I go. Go ahead, Craig. (laughs) There you go. Well, I guess, uh, (laughs) yeah, I know it's coming up, isn't it? My thought is basically the same thing, Bob. I mean, it sounds to me like, Jesse, that it would be a worthwhile effort to reach out to the various state bar associations and ask them for some input because I know that uh, all the lawyers have addressed this issue and most of the bar associations that have have come up on the side that it's secure and it's safe to use because we all use it. But this really calls that ruling, those rulings into question and causes me great concern. It just eliminates privacy around the United States. And I think we just once and for all have to accept the fact that nothing is private. Well, That brings us to the end of our show, Bob. That does. And I almost feel like taking more of my 30 seconds just to say I'm just worried about what's going on with the government in this country. It it just seems like privacy has just gone to pot in every which way. And I'm really sorry about that. But anyway, maybe that's a topic for another show and certainly one we've covered a number of times. I really appreciate Jesse taking the time to be with us today. It's, uh, It's an important case and I wish you success going forward on this. Thank you both. Well, that's it, and thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. See you next time. See you then. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.